Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we'll enter the fantastic world of Pyrrhea, created by Tui Sutherland. Tui has written more than 40 books, including the New York Times best-selling series, Wings of Fire. Tui joins us by Skype from her home in Boston. Her editor, Amanda Maciel, is here with me in the studio. Tui, for our listeners who have yet to fall in love with the Wings of Fire series, can you explain the books a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to. Wings of Fire is a sort of epic dragon fantasy set in a world where all of the main characters are dragons. There are humans in this world, but the dragons don't know how to communicate with them. They mostly think of them as sort of annoying little squirrels, and they eat them pretty much whenever they see them. So it's not a great world to be a human in, but it's an awesome world to be a dragon in. There are seven tribes of dragons that are spread out over this continent and there are queens of each tribe and at the beginning of the whole series there's a war going on between the seven tribes well there's two of them that are not particularly involved but between the five main tribes on the continent and there's a prophecy that says that there's going to be five little dragonettes that are going to grow up to stop the war and save the world and the whole first five books of the series are about those five dragons and whether or not they actually want to fulfill their destiny and how they feel about being in a prophecy and how they decide to fulfill it or not as the books go on. There's a different main character for each book. So I get to kind of explore different reactions to the prophecy, different feelings about it. And they each have their own like character arc that they go through over the course of each book. And I know that a lot of your young fans get very excited about taking the quiz to see which tribe they identify with. I did it myself. I'm um, Tsunami the Sea Wing. Okay. Oh, <laughs> she's like, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I was quite pleased. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that world and how the dragon tribes are split up and live amongst each other. It's pretty fascinating, the map that you show. <laughs> I love the map. It's funny because um, I drew this sort of um, you know, awkward sketch of a map. I, I wanted it to look like a dragon when you open the book. Um, there's this continent, but it's sort of shaped like a dragon. And it was really helpful. Um, I went through an atlas and I just looked for um, pieces of the world that looked dragonish that, that I could fit together. Um, and then I sent it to Amanda and she got this wonderful map artist to make it into something totally beautiful. Um, and I love it so much. I actually have it hanging above my desk so that when I'm writing, I can look at it and remember where they are and how they're going to get from place to place. So there are seven kingdoms, but only six of them are on the map because one of them is secret. It's the Nightwings have hidden themselves away somewhere. And um, they're divided very much by habitat. And that was something I did because I was thinking about sort of the evolution of dragons and what I could give to each tribe to make them distinct. Um, And I did some, like, I watched some animal documentaries, like, about crocodiles for the mudwings or scorpions for the sandwings who have, like, the scorpion, like, venom barb on the end of their tails. And then the whole map is divided up by, you know, so the, the dragons who can breathe ice and, like, live in the Arctic are up in the ice kingdom and so on and so forth. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Amanda, what drew you mm-hmm. to the series and to working with Tui? You can hear just how rich the world is and how much there is there. But 
what people don't usually know is that Tui and I go way back. We were both editors at HarperCollins in the early aughts, if that's what we call it. And I <laughs> knew immediately upon meeting her, she's just one of the most brilliant people I've ever known. We would talk about TV and she would have incredible insights and her instincts for fantasy were so spot on. She edited a lot of it. And then when she left publishing to write full time, I sort of tried to stay in her orbit as much as possible. And we worked on another series here together at Scholastic when I had moved over. But she said, she was like, I have this dragon thing. And she sort of acknowledged that it's not, I like to admit that editing a series with a map in the front of the books is not what I thought was going to, you know, <laughs> be my career path. I tend to stray more towards contemporary and sort of like fun or, or humor. But of course, I wanted to see it because it was Tui. And when she said the dragons were the main characters, and she brought all of her humor and lightness and the friendships were so they just uh, jump off the page in this way that it's super accessible. So even though it's high fantasy and it's got all this really incredible setting and the background of each character and their tribe and the family connections, you know, it's really publishers talk about trends and you hear every once in a while somebody be like, Game of Thrones for tweens. And I'm like, it's already here. <laughs> so it's that level of complexity, but then it's super fun. And there's lots of dialogue and there's lots of stuff there for people who maybe aren't coming from other high fantasy already. Like you really get into it immediately just for the ease of the voice. And it's just a fun, fun place to be. Absolutely. And it is, as you say, such a rich and imaginative world. I'm wondering, Tui, what drew you to fantasy and what sorts of books did you read as a kid to prepare for this opus? I read pretty much everything. I'm very much like <laughs> omnivorous when it comes to my reading. I'll, I'll read anything I can find. But I've always loved fantasy in particular in terms of writing it, because I feel like there's just there's so much scope for imagination, I guess. That's kind of a cliche way to put it. But I think that you can whenever you get stuck in a story point, you can add pretty much anything, like, like the, the magic or whatever, but it still has to be consistent in the world. I just feel like there's so much potential in fantasy worlds. When I was younger, I would say one of the most probably influential books in my life was Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Song, which is about a girl named Menely who lives in a world where there are also dragons, but in that, in, in the Pern books, Anne McCaffrey's whole series about Pern, the humans have this relationship with the dragons where they bond with them at birth, and then they, they actually use the dragons to fight this sort of alien menace of thread that falls from the sky and, and kills people. And so they have this more like symbiotic relationship. And so I knew I wanted to do something different from that, but I, I loved reading those books when I was a kid. I loved, Mentally in particular, has this experience of being a girl in a world where girls don't get to do as much cool stuff. And so she ends up just being amazing. She does, she has all kinds of adventures and she ends up with these like tiny dragons called fire lizards. And it's just wonderful. And all the dragons in those books are really fun. So that's definitely one of the sort of fantasy series that affected me a lot when I was a kid. It's great that it's matriarchal, right? That the dragons, it's a, <laughs> a matriarchal world. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's important to me because I feel like I've read so many fantasy stories where it's like a man's world and only the men get to rule the kingdoms. And I thought, it's my fantasy world. I can do anything I want. <laughs> I'm going to flip it around. Go for and I'm it. have it be just equally arbitrary that only the women can rule. Mm -hmm. Only the female dragons can be queens of their kingdoms. Um, and the sort of unintended side effect of that is I, I ended up with a lot of female villains 
villains because, you know, they're the ones in charge. Of course, they're the ones making all kinds of terrible decisions and we have to rise up against them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, um, but it's still been really, it's really fun. It's fun to have that world where I, I can, where everyone thinks that, of course, male and female dragons are equal and there's no, there's no question that, like, the male dragons get to do cool things. Like, everyone gets to do them and everyone is equally strong. So I like doing that. How does the editing process work between the two of you? Do you mm-hmm. go back and forth on each manuscript often, or what's it like? My job is pretty easy because Dewey is so smart, and she lives so deeply in this world that, especially the early books, I, I would get the manuscript, and I'd be like, I found a typo, and I just, <laughs> I would, you know, I would want to talk about it, but more like as a fan than as an editor, and it's such a... That's such a gift. And on the other hand, I was like, oh, God, am I not doing my job? But as the books have gone on, I feel like I've had more. We're up to book 10 now. So obviously, the deadlines are tighter than ever. And, you know, once a series takes off, you want them to come out as quickly as possible for the fans. But the author needs a minute to write them. So, So everything gets a little compressed. But also, the world has gotten complicated enough that at this point, I really like jumping in there and you know often we'll talk on the phone just uh-huh. to kind of work out a, a couple different ideas I yeah. also wanted to say that back when Amanda and I first met actually we were we made we had a writing group together and Amanda herself is a really wonderful writer so the fact that she talks about not really being a fantasy editor I think that that never worried me because I know what a wonderful writer she is and so she has such a good sense for sentences and like voice and story that it didn't matter what the genre was. I knew she would be wonderful and have wonderful advice. And she always does. I call her with problems. Like whenever, as I'm writing, I'll be like, I don't know what should happen like with this particular character. And she'll help me sort of talk through them. And it's really helpful. I can. It's a good thing I'm an ice wing and I'm not going to burst into flames right now from embarrassment. (laughs) Um, but uh, but yes, I'm I'm good at having an opinion on demand. That is one of my <laughs> one of my superpowers. Yeah, it was, it was a tough job, I would think. <laughs> like from one, one minute you're like, no, I don't care, and then somebody poses a question, like, oh no, I can I can pick a side here, um, <laughs> which I really appreciate because that can be very indecisive. Book ten, Darkness of Dragons, is out this month, which is very exciting, I'm sure, for your fans. For our listeners who don't know about it, could you give us a little bit of a sneak peek? Sure, absolutely. I'm super excited about book 10. It's the culmination of the second arc. So I've been talking before about books one through five, but in books six through 10, there's actually a new prophecy that comes from a little dragon that we meet in book six. And she's at this school for dragons and she meets these friends there and they're sort of set off on this quest and that just gets more and more complicated over each book. So by book 10, this is the one where I kind of have to pull all the threads together and resolve the prophecy and try to make everything make sense. So I was definitely a little nervous about it. And Amanda was very gracious about letting me have a little extra time to figure some of that stuff out and also make it the longest book ever. So I really hope the fans <laughs> like it. <laughs> I'm very, it's, it's basically, there's been, there's this like major, he's not, I, I hesitate to call him a villain because a lot of people don't really see him that way. And that's intentional. I tried to make him as complicated as possible. But he's the—he's sort of the thing they've been grappling with over all the books, and this is the one. There's a young dragon named Kibley who's a Sandwings, and he's the—he's he, kind of the final sort of wall between this this guy and a whole new change for Pyria for the world of dragons. So we we have to see if Kibley can handle it. Does this mean there's a book eleven out there? 
Thing. Oh, are you allowed to say that, Amanda? I think so. Yes. Ooh, a yes. scoop. <laughs> Eleven through uh, fifteen are kicking off next year to the 2018 um super super excited there's so many spoilery things that i want to tell you about it although tui knows even more of those things but the good news is that the the world is continuing and uh and for a good stretch of of books that's sensational yeah Yeah. i'm super excited and actually it's really hard because i know we're like the focus is book 10 right now but i'm writing book 11 and there's so much i want to tell everybody about what happens so i really am looking forward to starting to like spill all those secrets but i I probably won't do it yet all right well let's take a step back here i understand that the the books are being made into graphic novels that will have our first graphic novels in 2018 yes in january uh book one the dragonet prophecy is being adapted into a graphic novel and it is so beautiful. Um, the artist Mike Holmes came on to adapt the world into art, and it's just, it's incredible looking at these pages and watching it really come to life in this whole new way. Yeah, it's very strange for me because I've had them in my head for so long. To mm-hmm. suddenly see them all on the page is really exciting. I think Mike is pretty amazing. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the process was like working with the illustrator? Scholastic has the graphics imprint, which is incredible. Uh, They publish the Rena Telgemeier books and Amulet, and they just completely know what they're doing. So I, as a new editor in the graphic space, relied on them very heavily to help us find some artists to give samples and guide us through the process. But it's, it's been a lot. There's a lot of people involved. A writer who adapted the book into a script which then Tui, of course, had tremendous ultimate input on. We have the artist, Mike Holmes. We have a colorist and the letterer. And it really is a much different animal than than just getting a manuscript and, you know, line editing it and calling one person to talk about it. But it's been just incredible to watch it come to life. And I think for Tui and I, a little bit hard to... I, well, I don't want to speak for you, Tui, but like the sketches will come in and they're very sketchy. And, <laughs> and there's like a bunch of dragons <laughs> crammed into one sixth of a page. And you're like, which one is that? So as the art has become more final and color is being added, it's like watching a photo come into focus. And it's really, I guess that's not a thing anymore. We don't have like Polaroids. But back in the day <laughs> when you had to wait for the Polaroid. Yeah, um, but, uh, but it's been it's been really cool. Yeah, I wanted to actually give a shout out to the writer who adapted them first because I had never done a graphic novel, so I really appreciate that he really understood the story really well. Very Deutsch. He's a writer himself, but he's done his own graphic novels, and um, I felt like he really understood the story because there's a lot of things you have to change to make mm-hmm. it a graphic novel. You have to cut a lot of my words. I have so many words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the graphic novel is, is I mean, graphic novels already are shorter in some ways, uh, certainly dialogue-wise, but, uh, but this one will actually be shorter than the book that it's based on, so that was, there was some judicial like talking about certain scenes or characters who might have to, you know, kind of, as I imagine, turning something into a movie would be like streamlining it. And my books are really up up in the dragon's heads. Like there's, you know, pages and pages of clay, like thinking. So I thought it was, and then talking. I also, I love writing lots and lots of dialogue for my characters. So it was, I'm sure a big challenge for Barry. And I really appreciate everything he did to work on that. Yeah, me too. What a fascinating process. I would think yeah. that you're going to engage your current fans and bring along maybe some struggling readers who will have a new entry into I the book. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I really think graphic novels are just 
so important, and I'm so happy that they've reached kind of critical mass, um, especially for younger readers, because they're they're deceptively um, inviting and simple. I think that you know interpreting art and text at the same time is invaluable, really. It reminds me a little bit about the fan art that you get, Chewy. All of your fans I see on the internet. It's pretty hilarious. Could you tell us about how they engage with you and the work that they do to respond to your books? Oh, absolutely. It's my absolute favorite thing. Um, I go to events and in two ways. Um, a lot of kids will bring me art that they've done of dragons, either of dragons that are already in the series or of characters they've made up for themselves, which I love tremendously. And then there's also a lot of kids who are writing their own fan fiction about Wings of Fire. And I think that is amazing. I like 1000% encourage that because I really want kids to feel like this is, you know, I created this giant world. There's thousands of dragons in it. Um, so there's all these other stories I'm never going to get to tell. And I want them to feel like they can come in and play in that world and just experiment with how they want to write and the characters they want to create. And I very much feel like they're doing that from the feedback I get at these events and the wonderful things they bring me. They bring me stories. They bring me paintings and drawings and art. And it's and, you know, I, I've gotten a couple of mugs recently where they, like, drew these beautiful dragons and then had them put on mugs. And I just, it's really unbelievable to me um, how talented these kids are because I can't, I can't draw at all. <laughs> and, and how deeply engaged they are in that yeah. world. Yeah, absolutely. So special. Yeah. What are some of the funniest reactions from your young fans about your books? The funniest reaction, perhaps, is about this particular dragon who is in book two. His name is Whirlpool. And I didn't think he was that important a dragon. I mean, they're all important in their own heads. But for the purposes of the story, he was mostly there to annoy Tsunami, the main character, and to create problems for her and then to die in a horrible way at the end of the book. Sorry, mini spoiler. <laughs> but I kept getting letters afterwards from kids who were like, is he going to come back? Like, what's going to happen to him? And I thought that was fascinating that they were so interested in this minor character and then that kind of ramped up in a later book um, when there was this other character who's also kind of a bad guy to these dragons he's done good things in his life and he certainly has good intentions in his own way but he's not he's not a wholly good dragon and I got a lot of responses to him too letters from kids explaining why he wasn't really a bad guy and really understanding his side of the story and I thought that was such an interesting window into these kids' minds, like how wonderfully open-minded they are and like willing to think about all the different sides of a story, which is something I'm very interested in. And so it, it actually led to me writing about Darkstalker in books six through 10, who is, a, who is the one I mentioned earlier, the villain that has kind of a much more, that I was trying to make as complicated and sympathetic as possible because he's not completely evil. He doesn't mean to be. He thinks he's doing the right thing. And I really felt like the kids who read Wings of Fire understand that about people um, and dragons, I guess. <laughs> and they really want to get that sort of complexity of character and like think about all the possible reasons you might do something. I'm really interested in different sides of a story. And part of what's great about working on this series is that I get to tell each book from a new character. So they each get to show their own side of the story. And I really feel like the kids are doing that too when they write their fan fiction. They are, they're giving their own sides of the story and they're seeing other sides of the story too. So oh. I love that about, about these readers in particular. Does the fact that your characters are dragons make it easier or more challenging to have them impart life lessons? Oh, interesting. That's a good question. I mean, I must admit, I think of them as dragons in a very physical way in terms of 
I actually have like dragon figurines on my desk to remind myself like, oh, what are their claws doing? What is their tail doing? What are their teeth and wings doing right now? But in terms of their inner souls, I guess, I think of them very much as teenagers. And they're going, you know, through a lot of the same things that, that any teenager has to go through. I mean, maybe not literally <laughs> in terms of, you know, their mom trying to kill them. I feel like they're experiencing a lot of the same things emotionally that teenagers are experiencing in middle school um, in high school in terms of their friendships and the strength of their friendships and figuring out who to trust and like what, what kind of, mostly about identity. You know, all of these dragons are trying to figure out like who they should be and what, what they want to be, do with their life. Not like career-wise, not like what am I going to be when I grow up, but more like what kind of dragon am I going to be? And I think that's a big thing that teenagers are all working on too, or young, younger kids too. I think that young readers are all working on this, I, this like vision of themselves, and that's certainly what the dragons are working on. So I don't know if it makes it easier to make them dragons, but I think it makes it more fun. Oh, that's just so great. Now, I know you have two sons. Could you tell us a little bit about how they inform your work or <laughs> prevent you from sure. getting work done, maybe? <laughs> what yeah. do you like to read to them? I'm so lucky. They're both big readers. They love they love books. They love all the books Amanda sends me. Which, you know, Scholastic publishes so many great books for their age. They're five and seven. But also all these graphic novels that, they, that my kids are really obsessed with. You know, we've read... Amulet. Jonah's read, the older one has read all the Raina Telgemeier books. Newts, we read Newts, and they really loved that too. Cleopatra in Space, that's one of their favorites. They really love stories that have that adventure at the center. I mean, they're still, they're both still pretty young, but I, you know, where I, I love the character part, and so I like how those come together. And I would say they definitely influence my writing because I started writing the series when Jonah was first born. So I actually sent the outline into my agent literally a couple of days before my first child was born. <laughs> and so I had, you know, head full of dragons, but also like, oh my God, a baby, what do I do now? <laughs> so, how do I, how do I do this? And so I, you know, the books are kind of like a little bit about working through all of my parenting worries where I like to say that I've created all these terrible parents as sort of reassurance that at least I'm not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm not Queen Scarlet. She's pretty terrible. She's one of the worst moms in this world, for sure. So I think about that a lot, like how these dragons, you know, a lot of them have really bad parents, but they still manage to be heroes anyway, and how they find support from other, from like their siblings. And then later in the series, I started to introduce some better parents in like book five and six. I think you see moms that are a little more connected to their dragons, because I felt a little more comfortable by then (laughs) with my own parenting. Um, And then... Just a smaller one, there's a, there's a dragon that shows up in book eight that is very much based on my younger son. Because I had when I was writing book one, I was imagining what I wanted my older son to be like when I wrote Clay. So Clay is kind of like my idealized vision of future Jonah. Book eight is where I was like, I really have to include Elliot somehow. And he was three at the time, and he was just an absolute lunatic. <laughs> like the funniest, most like just performing all over the place and just really hilarious and wonderful. Um, And so the dragon, there's a little dragon that shows up in that book called Cliff. I I was very much basing on him. Like everything Cliff says is something I could completely imagine Elliot saying. So I I found him really fun to write because I was imagining him. Could you tell us about your own childhood? It sounds quite fascinating in all your adventures. Oh, yeah, I was really lucky. My parents gave me such an interesting childhood. Sometimes I worry that I'm not doing that for my own kids. Like, should we be moving to South American countries and, like, (laughs) packing up and moving every couple of years just to give them some character, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> but no, I was I was born in Venezuela, and we lived we moved several times, but most of my childhood was spent in Paraguay, in Asuncion, and yeah, and, and we and we did travel a lot. My mother's from New Zealand, so we were always going back to visit family there, or traveling mostly all over South America. I mean, one of the effects of all the moving for for sure was that I ended up becoming really close with my sister. And yes. I think you see that particularly in the first five Wings of Fire books, the closeness of the sibling bond between the five dragons. They're not actually siblings, but they've grown up together, so they feel that way. And that's how I feel about Kari. She's like my best friend. And, it, you know, the fact that we kept moving and had nobody but each other, like really threw us together. <laughs> so that's one thing. And then I think also just the experience of seeing so many different parts of the world. I've tried to to draw that into the books, you know, like to to imagine all the places I've been when I'm describing a new kingdom, for instance. So I really, I'm really grateful to my parents for giving me all of that kind of experience. Yes, and you're so close with your sister that you're actually co-authors. Yeah, that's true. We wrote a trilogy together called Menagerie, which is about a boy who discovers a secret zoo of mythical creatures. And the way it started is Kari actually was the one who said, oh, I have an idea, you know, secret zoo, mythical creatures. And I said, oh, I want to steal that. (laughs) And then then I said, actually, why don't we write it together? And it worked so well because I could call her with any questions and we brainstormed the whole thing together. And I think she would prefer to outline a little more than I do. very much at like, let's jump in and figure it out as we go kind of writer. But in the end, I feel like it all came together really well. It was a, it was a really fun sort of project to work on. Was fantasy always a favorite genre for you? It was, although um, I will admit, so when we lived in Paraguay, um, there were tiny, tiny libraries. Like my school library was like barely the size of my office now. It was this little tiny room. And I probably, if I'd been there for more than five years, I could have read all of the books in that library. And I made it, I made a go at it. <laughs> I gave it a try. <laughs> so anything that was there, I read all the Nancy Drew books, Hardy Boys, Bobsy Twins, The Three Investigators, so all the mysteries, the Secret Seven. I read the Black Stallion books, although I was never as much of a horse girl as my sister was. I remember trying Little House on the Prairie, but it was hard to get into because... America just felt very far away. All right. So what's next for you two? You got a few deadlines here? We have (laughs) so many dragons coming. Really, every six months you can count on some more brilliance from Tui. Book 10 is on sale uh, July 25th. and, uh, And then right after the holidays, we'll have the graphic novel coming out. And then next summer, we expect to have book 11. So... Lots. I'm so excited. Yeah. Yeah. Amanda has given me a little more time to work on book 11, which is great because yeah. it involves a little more world building. That's a clue. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so I've, I've been working on that and it's, um, yeah, I'm hoping to get it to her in the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to have you. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Great thanks again to author Tui Sutherland and editor Amanda Maciel for joining us today. To learn more about Tui's work, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Is there a topic you'd like us to discuss? We'd love to hear from you. Send a note to scholasticreads at scholastic.com. To help other book lovers find us, Please review and subscribe to Scholastic Reads on your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, 
and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads with you next time. 